come back to those questions that I asked you a little while ago. How do you view God today? Maybe there are people that want to just shout out how they view God today, and there's not a kind of a, a, a kind of an, an answer I'm particularly expecting. Maybe it's just an honest answer. How I view God today? How do you view God today? Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh my provider, is what it means. God, my provider. Wow. God my provider for some of you you will feel you will view God as as a friend as a provider as a master and a king you'll be you'll be very much aware of his goodness of his holiness. That's how you'll view God today. You'll view God as merciful. But maybe today you'll view God as as distant. Maybe that's your view of God today. Maybe your view of God today is, is an angry God. Maybe you have a view of God as as one who is judgmental. Maybe you view God as a figment of some people's imagination. It's my prayer that as we look together at this this passage that, that maybe there'll be a new perspective on who God is as we look together. What about sin? How do you view sin today? Risky one to ask people and for them to kind of dare to say anything, but how do you view sin today? Again, you don't have to answer because I know it's exposing, but you might want to be bursting with it. You just want to say, oh, this or that. Hate it. I hate sin. Wow. Thank you. It's frightening. Thank you, yeah, that's really honest. Both of those are honest answers. I always think sin is coming from the heart. Sin is coming from the heart. Mm. Yeah, sin coming from the heart, from pride and self-centeredness. Thank you, that, that's a really helpful perspective. Sin, a desire to live independently of Father God. Yeah, something that separates us from God. Thank you. <laughs> so sin as something that at, at its heart is is kind of driven by selfishness yeah yeah Joan yeah yeah oh man oh man 
And we'll see that, I think, in in some measure in this passage this morning. Thank you, Joan. So so all sorts of perspectives there on sin, helpful perspectives. And again, I hope uh, and and pray that that through this morning, our our looking at this passage, we'll, we'll see sin for what it is. But we'll also see the hope that we have because of Jesus. And the final question, which is, is, is probably too long for you to answer, but how does your view of God and sin affect your life today, this last day of, uh, of August 2014? Hmm. Okay, we must disappoint and upset God. <sighs> Thank you. Sorry? That's mild. That's a, that's mild. But that, that's, thank you. That's okay. Thank you. There's a sadness. Okay. Yeah. A sadness. Okay. Yeah. So I guess those things are, are, are how God feels to some extent, isn't it? And I hope that as we kind of look at this again today, that, that maybe our, our views of these things will help us in our own lives, lived out day by day, as we get up and do all we do, go to work, keep our homes, raise our children and our grandchildren, and, and, and all that we do in our working life, our, our leisure life. We've looked at some Bible heroes through, through August, and today I'm not going to look at so much Moses himself, but I guess just a window that is opened through Moses into these things, particularly God and sin and how that affects us. Those are the three things I'd like us to look at this morning. I guess when I ask you the question, what do you view, how do you view God today? That could feel just a little bit detached, my kind of view of God. It could be like asking, how do you view the Scottish referendum? Don't get me started. Or how do you view Chelsea's second goal yesterday? Was it offside? But I think it's important for us to see our view of these things. That It can be informed by Scripture. So what is your view of sin? In this passage, we need to see just how serious sin is. I think it's important probably just to stop for a minute and to say, well, what is sin that troubles us, that that frightens us, that, that affects us? Back a few chapters in Exodus chapter 20, where Moses is given the Ten Commandments, the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment kind of gets us going quite well on trying to work out what it is that sin is. To to go against that first commandment is sin. You shall have no other gods before me. And here in chapter 32, the people of Israel completely mess up on that first commandment. First base, uh, tripped over, fallen over. 
But I hear you say, I've, I've never worshipped a golden idol. I've never bowed down to any kind of image that is supposedly a god. That's obviously not right. You might even question the sanity of bowing down to a kind of a carved image. You might think, well, that's just primitive. But when the Bible speaks of other gods, what we see is putting God, our creator, out of central position in our lives and letting other things people, attitudes or actions or thoughts, putting them into pole position and and sidelining God. I've heard sin defined as a despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. See, sin goes far deeper than not being kind to other people. Or even being plain nasty, actually. It goes far deeper than that. It goes far deeper than saying or doing or thinking things that might be unkind or wrong or actually plain immoral. Sin is not, as, as I think we probably would acknowledge, sin is not just about murderers evil dictators, bank robbers, rapists. Sin affects me. Sin affects you. A guy called Wayne Grudem defines sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God whether it's in act or in attitude or in our very nature. See, sin is about our relationship with God being broken and our unwillingness to come to him, to submit to his authority. If we look in Exodus chapter 32... The people of Israel, they sin not just because they seem to very fickly abandon God. Moses had only been gone 40 days and they're thinking, well, what's all this all about? Let's kind of sort this out for ourselves. It's not just that they did that in verse 1. Although I wonder, just thinking about that, and as a pastor I've heard this, How often do we justify our actions that it's okay because actually our Christian friends didn't see it or our pastor didn't know about it, so it's okay. We are quite fickle, aren't we? But as long as nobody else sees it, it's okay. Maybe that's just me. But they sinned not just because they were fickle and they, they, they lost sight of God because their leader had gone out of the way. 
They sinned not just because they worshipped a golden calf, that they were specifically told, you don't worship idols. But they sinned because, verse 26, they refused to reaffirm their commitment to God, even when they had stepped away. When Moses, with echoes of of Elijah, actually, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, either you are for God or you are not for God, Moses said. Elijah, a couple of weeks ago, either you are for God or you are for Baal. There ain't no in-between. And when Moses throws that challenge to the camp of the Israelites and said, come here if you are for the Lord. He was pretty stunned by the silence. It's only the the tribe of the Levites that seemed to come to him. This episode, although it happened thousands of years ago, I think gives us a window into our very nature. That we are sinful. We looked at uh, a series called The Big Picture back in March where we, we looked at the fall. And we saw that actually in our very nature we are sinful. The Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve decided that they did not want to submit to God's authority. They would do what they were told not to do. And we see how sin entered into the world. In Psalm 51... David, having just committed adultery with Bathsheba, recognises that he has messed up, that he has gone against God's best for our lives and our relationship. And he acknowledges that he was sinful from birth. Though he was king, though he was powerful, he was sinful from birth. Think about this for a minute. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We never start out sinless. We're not sinners because we sin. But we sin because we are sinners. It's in our very nature. Sin is a reality for me and for you. And God knows. And he knew back then. That's why he wanted to establish a way of relating to his people. That's why he gave Moses the commandments. That's why he made covenants with Abraham and Isaac. He wanted relationship with us. Which brings us to that Second question, although I asked it first, what is our view of God? What does this episode tell us about God? As I kind of put that 
question down on the page, I I was a bit daunted, because how can one possibly do God justice? In a million books, John writes that these things are written down and there is so much more to say about Jesus than could ever fill all the books ever written. But what does this passage just point to us about God? Verses 7 to 8, he knows. He knows about our sin. Even as he was speaking to Moses on the mountain, he knew what was going on down there. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. God is all-knowing. We also see by verse 10 that sin makes God angry. That sin and God are polar opposites. God who is love and justice and mercy and goodness. There's a polar opposite, which is sin. Sin is an affront to God. And his anger is his reaction to it because it's something that spoils. We see that his instinct is to destroy a stiff-necked people. Not stiff-necked because they slept funny, but stiff-necked because they are stubborn. That's what that means. Stubborn. Hearted. Gonna do it my way. But we learn too that God will not let sin go unpunished. He's a God of justice. But we see too that that God listens. It's lovely that bit in verses 11 to 13 where Moses pleads for the people. Can you imagine? how that must have felt, how scary that must have been. Lord, if you don't mind, please hear what I want to say. Please hear. And actually, that's, that's an amazing testimony to Moses because God has just said to Moses, look, I'm going to destroy these ne'er-do-wells and I'll make you a great nation. Moses had not had an easy ride with the people he was leading. God was offering to get rid of them all, but Moses says, no, please, Lord, please. You've given me these people. Don't destroy them. Think about what that will do to your reputation, let alone what it will do to them. Don't just destroy them all. Please, Lord, let your anger not burn. And God listens. God listens. You might think, and I get this, actually this passage is one of those passages that that could give real ammunition to people who would say, well, well, God, I can't accept the God of the Bible because look, he just kills people. Verse 27, 3,000 of the Israelites were killed. Friends and brothers and neighbours were killed. Why would God have... Moses, order that. 
That is so hard for us to get our head around. Why? We read just a couple of chapters later. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Turn with me if you've got it open in your Bibles. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. As God appears to Moses after this incident, he says to him, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. I don't fully get it. I don't fully get verse 27. But there's a couple of things that I would say about verse 27 which records a killing of up up to 3,000 people. First thing is that actually those people who died that day were unrepentant. They were hard towards God and they said, Nuh-uh, I'm going to do this my way. Now to our sensibilities that still seems pretty awful. The God who is abounding in love. How did he feel about the sin that caused that to be the outcome? What does that kind of action say about the seriousness of sin? People that he had chosen, who rejected him. What does that say about how God feels about your sin and mine? I wonder if we've begun to try and sort of sanitise our sinfulness, make it palatable, kind of make it okay around the edges. God cannot tolerate sin. It requires action. And back then, that seemed to be one of the the kind of the upshots, although it wasn't the whole people. They still had stuff to, to face. Having already had to drink gold kind of flavored water, which doesn't sound too good. Then see some of their people destroyed, and then a plague comes on them. That's sin had serious consequences. The guilty will not go unpunished. But thank God, as we gather here before the Lord's table, 
while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us. He died for the ungodly. Jesus came to stand in our place, took the punishment for our sin. And so our sin does not go unpunished. Now that can go two ways. We can ignore God and take the consequences of our own sin, which ultimately will be eternal separation from God in hell. Or we can turn to Jesus and receive mercy for the sin that is a total affront to God. Just as God wanted relationship with his wandering people, wanted relationship with Moses, He wants relationship with you. He wants relationship with you. He came from heaven to earth to take upon himself the punishment that must take place for our sin. Praise God for So a final question as we come to communion. I said, what impact does our view of sin and our view of God have on our lives today? I want that to be a practical thing about me and you. Not a kind of an intellectual thing, but what impact? Does sin and God and our our relating to those two things, how, how does that impact our lives today? Do we try and brush our sin under the carpet? Maybe say, well, I have, I've got plenty to keep me going, thank you very much. Actually, I'm pretty busy and, and I'm an okay person, Thanks. Do we reject him outright? Say, nonsense. I'm a good person. Do we act with complacency? People, I think there's a real danger for us that we act with complacency. Do we look around at other people's lives and say, well, actually, compared with them and their sin, I'm not half too bad. I come to church. I don't steal anything. I don't, I don't do anything too bad. Or do we act with humility? Do we put pride aside somewhere that was mentioned in our conversation earlier? Do we come before God with gratitude? Do we do something with the gift of forgiveness freely given in Jesus? As we see this table 
Do we just take it as part of a, a routine we do in church? Or do we see this bread and this wine as a startling reminder of our sinfulness and God's incredible generosity to us and his promise of forgiveness and his promise of a filling with the Holy Spirit that will help us if we will let him to transform us, shape us and mould us to be ever more like him. We need to seek his forgiveness and there's no better place than around this table. But actually we need to seek his forgiveness daily, hourly, minutely even, I don't know. But we need to keep coming to God and saying, Lord... Be honoured in my life. Help me, Lord, not to dishonour you with what I do or say or think. Help me to recognise that I am broken as a sinner and I need your saving. Forgive me, Lord. Maybe we need to be open to him this morning to convict us in particular things where we've decided we'll go our way, thank you. Not yours. I'm perfectly capable, thank you, Lord. I'll come back to you when I really need you. We need to accept his forgiveness, though. Because actually, as we receive his forgiveness, he will break chains that bind us. I want us to take a, a hymn as we come to communion. Which uh, we've sung, I think, at, at least once in recent times as a, a kind of a, a, a walk in to communion. Verse 3 of this song I just think is so appropriate today. Bread for you, drink and remember. He drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a, bo- as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of the King.